Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Good morning and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Uh, today we have Vivian McKinnon here with us and uh, we're in the Hydro E Centre in Dundonald. Yep. 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 Dundonald. Good morning. Good morning. Fire in the Belly, what, what does it mean to you? Have you heard of it before? Yeah, yeah. Um, heard, of, heard of it before as in your fire in the belly or heard of it before as in just fire in the belly? Oh, fire general. in the belly in general. Oh, aye, aye. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, fire in the belly is... is uh, it, it, it's, it, I suppose it's like a driver. Uh, uh, okay. Like a, I was going to use the word passion, but it's because you used that this morning, <laughs> um, I suppose it is a passion. It's a it's a it's a driver. It's a God. It's really hard to describe, isn't it? it is Fire a in bit. the belly. Hmm. Aye. Um, Do you think everyone has it? Oh, aye, aye. I think it's. Um, well, I mean, I know I have, a, I have a fire in my belly, but like we have here in Hydro's, we have our mission here is to heal the world one flow at a time. Mm. And every single, and I, 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 you know, pay forward to that mission every single day, pay forward to that vision. Every single person that comes in here and floats and then goes, it's like, it's like the stories, you know, about the, um, the starfishes on the sand. Mm -hmm. And there's like millions of them and there's a wee boy picking one up and throwing one and, and the woman comes along and she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, you know, I'm throwing back the starfish. And she was like, there's millions of them you'll not make a difference there's, there's too many and he picks one up and goes well it made a difference to that one picks another one up made a difference to that one so it's the same here in Hydro's and that's what keeps that fire in mm. my belly it's, it's, it's what keeps it it's seeing people coming in who are stressed or anxious or in pain of some sort and going back out like oh my god that was amazing and just seeing the change in them and seeing that, that it's possible to live to, they don't have to keep living the way they've been living oh okay <coughs> So who are you? Where are you from? <laughs> I am Vivian McKinnon, mm -hmm. originally Vivian Thompson, from um, Roslyn, a tiny village just outside Edinburgh. Sorry, okay. I'm going to cough. <clears throat> um, a tiny village just outside Roslyn, mm -hmm. um, Midlothian, which is about 10 miles south of Edinburgh. Um, and born in 1971 okay. to Mary and Jack, who my dad was a coal miner and my mum was a cleaner. My mum aspired to be a psychiatric nurse, okay. but just never, never, never made it. Um, had always wanted to, had worked in the Roslyn, Roslyn Lee Hospital, it was called at the time. It's, it's no longer there. Um, worked there, but then fell pregnant with my sister. Had two miscarriages after my sister, had a wee boy that died, and then had me. So when I was born, I was supposed to be a wee boy. But as you can see, that never quite worked <laughs> out. Never quite worked out for her. Um, so, I mean, the first words I heard was, oh, I thought it was a wee boy. So for me, rejection was a massive thing from, oh. from the get-go. Is that when you were born you, yeah, you heard that? Yeah, okay. um, but mm -hmm. I mean, not that I can remember hearing yeah, it, but yeah. you know, th through my mum telling me the stories, sure, you know. Sure. But then, but I mean, that story was followed up with, but we loved you just the same. Mm -hmm. But when you hear things like that, they really, they really mm. resonate and stick with you. Um, so my mum's mental health really took a, took a nosedive. My granny was alcohol dependent and my granddad was schizophrenic. And mental health and addictions was something that was kind of like a generational um, 
badge of honour kind of thing. Um, so my mum then, when as as we were growing up, my mum's mental health started to deteriorate quite a lot. My dad was the president of a local miners club, so she had. Um, you know, huge access to, to alcohol. And back in the days, you know, going to the pub was like the pubs were always really busy, and mm. you know, the alcohol was a lot cheaper, and it was you know, and everybody kind of socialised. Um, and then I had my brother, who is two years younger than me. Um, and then just you know, when my mum's increasing, you know, um, deterioration of mental health, she found it really difficult to parent. And I remember being about maybe five or six and I would wet myself if my mum came anywhere near me. As soon as she raised her voice, I would go. So I was quite a sensitive child. I was quite a sort of emotional child. I was mm -hmm. quite, looking back now, I was quite an empathic child. I, like I could go into somewhere and I could pick up energies and, and vibes right away. And, and I would know who to cheer up and I would know who to try and calm down. And I, would yeah. know, and I just innately kind of knew these things and really picked up on that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, by eight years old, I had probably, when I was about, maybe about, eight and a half months mm -hmm. um, uh, my mum left a door open in, in the house she was helping my sister down the stairs with stuff and I went right out the front door and right down 30 concrete stairs and a baby walker and um, when we're born we're born with just over 300 bones a lot of that is tissue and cartilage so round about between when we start to take to our feet so between 8 and 18 months and mm. our bones fuse and form we're left with about 200 I had only just started that process which for me was really lucky because it meant my bones were still quite soft there was still quite mm. a lot of movement and flexibility so when I fell down the, the stairs I really just swell up mm -hmm. so I got taken straight to the hospital but you know they were just kind of like it's just swelling she's just badly bruised um, and everything kind of went went back down again but that kind of set the tone for quite a traumatic sort of childhood. Sure. Do you remember uh, that? No, no, I don't remember mm. it at all. Um, but then by age eight, I had pretty much experienced every abuse you could imagine. But I mean, not directly my mum and dad, but just through being left in vulnerable situations. And this was the seventies, you know, it was a bit, mm. it was a different time. I know that I'm making excuses for, for, for mm. the times, but the seventies definitely, seventies and eighties definitely were a different time to what they are now. Sure. Um, so at eight, I was um, I had I drank alcohol for the first time. So my mum and dad had a house party, mm. and I was stealing drinks and going behind the sofa and pouring them all into one, and started drinking it. And I remember getting up and singing in front of everybody and just acting silly and being funny and, and made everybody laugh. And and I remember then thinking, oh, this is great, making people laugh. It's great, mm. and do you know, and and I'm not anxious and I'm not scared in case my mum shouts and I'm not. This is quite a nice feeling. So. Now, knowing what I know now, do you know, on an unconscious level, I made that decision. All oh, right, that's a solution to that problem. So we'll go on and try and solve something else now. Mm. So alcohol kind of became a bit of a friend. Um, do you know, I was drinking straight bottles, quarter bottles of vodka um, at 13 and 14 years old. I mean, even the thought of it now, I'm like, it's <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> um, but then it was that mm. was it was what was working. Um, I was introduced to cannabis at 13. Um, then was left home at 15, ran away, went back, ran away, went back, met up, met my ex-husband when I was 17, got married pretty much right away, fell pregnant pretty much right away, and thought that if I got out of the house that my mum would be happy, that, you know, that everything would be fine, mm -hmm. that I, I would be married and I would have my own kids and, you know, I would, I would be able to create this life. It never quite worked out like that because yeah. what happened was in my haste to avoid the pain of the past, 
I coupled myself up with someone else who was trying to avoid the pain of the past. Okay. So, and you know, hurt people hurt people. Mm. So by the time I was 20, I was fleeing a domestic violence relationship. I was living on the streets. I had the clothes that me and my son had on and that was it. He was mm. only one and a half at the time. And um, he was he was um, charged with attempted murder. He was charged with kidnap. So I lived in and out of homeless accommodation. So I was in bed and breakfasts and stuff like that for a while. And then um, my ex-husband came to me and said, look, now at this point I had interdicts and stuff against him. But he um, came to me through a friend and said, if you give me 500 pound, I'll go to Jersey and you'll never see me again. So I then went and spoke to my dad. So because throughout my life, even, you know, my dad was always the one that held the family together. And he was always like, look. So when we were in the house, he would say, you cannot tell anyone what's going on in here. You cannot tell anybody about your mum's drinking. You can't tell anything about, you know, like my mum would throw hot chip pans at my dad and teapots full of hot tea and stuff like that mm. um, and he was always like you cannot tell anyone what's happening in this house because of you know the social work will be involved and but so he very much held us so growing up I watched the strength that he had and I watched the and I mean like I'm, I'm not saying that my dad's perfect because he's no but he's perfect to me mm. do you know and he was the one that was always um, I mean he was a grumpy old get but I, I would be grumpy if I was living if I was living with a partner who was who was acting in that way mm. but um, but I mean my mum was just struggling with trauma she was trying to do the best she could with the resources she had and the resources she had was alcohol so um but then on the other side of the door he would say now when you're out there don't lie do your best always give your best to never think you're better than anybody else you know so for me it was really growing up i always had this secret so as an adult it was like oh, i need to have a secret for me um, so you know, so the domestic violence, I kept a secret for mm. you know for a couple of years. Um, you know, smoking smoking cannabis, I kept that. That was my secret. Um, and then as I got, and when I got my house back um, after my husband moved to uh, moved to Jersey, I was back in the house for probably about I don't know, maybe about four months or something. Maybe not even that actually, but two or three months. And I was having a party one night um, and had everybody in, you know, we were all partying, we were all taking drugs, we were all drinking, we'd all been out clubbing. And I opened the door, the door went, and I thought it was one of my friends who had nipped away to get some more alcohol. And uh, when I opened the door, it was my husband. And he was like, guess who's back? And I was just like, oh no. And then there ended up being an incident in the back garden. The police were called. Various different things happened. So I then swapped my house. I went in for a swap. It was a house and executive house at the time. Okay. Um, swapped my house from where we lived and moved up to be nearer to my mum and dad. Um, from there, I then... So that was, that was probably the early 90s. Moved back, as I say, moved back up to Roslyn, moved back, and sorry, it was the early 90s, moved back up to there and really tried to kind of, you know, make a go of being a single parent and being a mom. Ended up meeting this other guy who was, um, again, just probably, I, I go through my life looking for people to help, mm. and it used to be to my detriment. Now I'm like, no, this is actually a skill, this is what I should be doing for a living, sure. not on a personal basis. So met this guy, stayed with him for five years. He was, again, like he was he was struggling with trauma. There were so many things in his background as well. But I could fix him. I was totally convinced I was the one that was going to fix him. He um, 
you know, slept with my friends, oh. dealt drugs from my house, had the house busted by the police, uh, loads of different stuff, but taught me so much at the same time. And looking back now, I realise that, you know, he taught me so much about life, he taught me so much about, you know, even in terms of, you know, d drugs and d various different things. Um, you know, I went on my first holiday abroad with him and lots of different things. So I look back now and have lots of gratitude for both of their relationships mm -hmm. because I learned so much about myself from them. Mm -hmm. I then got an opportunity to, um, the, I went for a job that was at the Roslyn Institute. So that was where Dolly the Sheep was cloned. Yeah. So I got a, a chance at a job there. So I went for, up until then I had been dancing in nightclubs, I had been working behind bars, I was, you know, and I got paid in drugs and alcohol, which, which was a great currency because it's all I needed back then. Mm -hmm. um, I then got offered a job working in science, so it was an experimental worker in molecular biology and immunology. And um, I went for the interview um, because one of the, there was a woman who lived in the village and she knew my mum, she knew my family, she knew the background of things that had happened. You know, I used to walk along the street in the village and people would say, oh, good morning, Hen, how are you? And that look of sympathy, that look of, oh, that poor girl, do you know? And, and I hated it. But it was almost like everybody felt they had a right to my life. But I look back now again, and I'm so grateful for that because it really nurtured me when I needed it. Mm. It really just threw some arms around me. Um, so the woman that I was going to end, that was that I was going to be working alongside, she went to the people who were doing the interview for the job, and she mm. said, "Look, I know she's not qualified enough for the job, um, but." You know, she's local, so she'll be reliable. I know her background, I know her family. She's on her own with this wee boy. She has, you know, she, she, she wants to better herself. I think it would be really good taking her on and I could train her in the job. So they listened to her. So I then went and worked with Janie and Janie became like a second mum to me. Oh, so okay. she was lovely. But again, there's, you look back and there's always somebody at some point in your life that you, that you, that you mm. know was the, your mentor at that point that were meant to be there. So I worked with Janie for years and then... Which were you then when you started? Uh, that was 1996. Oh, okay. So I was 25 at the time. Uh -huh. um, so I started there and it was my first proper job that was um, like wages through the bank. It wasn't just cash in hand or, or drugs or <laughs> alcohol. And um, so when I first started that job, I was like, right, mm. I'm going to donate some money to charity every month because I'm not used to having this wage. So I'll, sure. you know, so I found there was a charity in Scotland called Aberlour Childcare Trust. Okay. And they help people, they help children whose lives have been impacted by disability but also by mental health and addiction so I was like bingo I'll, I'll support these guys so that was in 1996 in 2000 they wrote me a letter offering me the opportunity to go out to China now by this point I was starting to have panic attacks again I was starting mm. to if anybody raised their voice I was starting to get really anxious I was starting to feel like I was going to wet myself all the time but again looking back now I know that it was the impact of trauma it was the triggers that were happening that were back in childhood it was these programs that were constantly being re-triggered um, so I had to raise £2,500 so I was sitting in a bar one night with the ex-boyfriend who had been with me for five years who'd broken in the house and was selling drugs and stuff and he um because I was still friends with him, because mm. even although he had done all that stuff, mm. because I, um, you know, rejection was a big thing for me. It was like, sure. oh, you can do whatever you want, just don't reject me. Just don't reject me. So, so I was friends with him, and I still am friends with him to mm. this day. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> we were sitting in the bar, and he, I said, oh, you know, I'm thinking about going to China. I'm going to raise two and a half thousand pounds, and I'm going to go out to raise money to help this charity. And he was like, 
your head is full of broken bottles. Like, you'll never be able to do that. And I remember sitting in the bar and looking at him and thinking, you will eat your words. I will make sure you eat your words. Supposing I have to go there on my hands and knees and mm. walk it, mm. I will be there. Um, so fast forward to October 2001 and um, I was on a plane on my way to China. I raised £2,600. I had applied for a grant for 22000 and got an application for a grant for £18,000. Um, went out to China with 52 people I had never met before in my life and challenged every single belief I had about myself, other people and the world in general. So I went out and every morning I woke up and I, would, I was sharing a room with a girl mm. and I made sure I was up like about two hours before we had to go anywhere. And I would get up and I would go into the bathroom and I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, right, panic. You have one opportunity today. Like, because I, like, I can't have this when there's loads of people who are going to think I'm a complete and utter, like, maniac, nutter, if I start having panic attacks in front of everybody. So if we're having a panic attack, we're doing it now. And, uh, and stood in the mirror looking at myself like... And a couple of mornings I did get like... And getting started to get really um, flustered. And then... So what happened is then later on in the day, if I felt mm. panic coming, if I felt something like, you know, if I felt my heart pounding or I felt that, that, that I was not being accepted in the group or that, you know, and, or, or I was starting to take myself away and withdraw, um, it was like there was a wee voice that was kind of going, right, hang on a minute. Just you, just you remember, she gave you an opportunity this morning. Because a bit of the story actually that I've left it is in 1999, before this happened, was that I collapsed. So I went from being slightly unwell to completely unconscious in six hours. Um, collapsed and ended up in hospital. Mm. I was in intensive care for two days. And um, when I came back round, I, went, I came back round, opened my eyes. Within six hours, I was like, I need to go home. I need to go home. I've got kids to look after. And you know, and what if the social work know that I'm here? And I'll, I'll, get, my, I'll get my kids taken off me. I'll get my son taken off me. And, um, and my daughter and below. And I was having all of these panics. Um, and uh, the internal critic who was always telling me how no good I was, how, mm. you know, all these different things. There was suddenly another voice there that was saying, you need to stop this. You need to... You, like if you keep going like this you're going to die um, what caused you to collapse? just my lifestyle yeah. so I got I got tested for um, they thought initially it was meningitis they then tested for so many different things they'd done lumbar punctures mm. done blood tests they'd done all these different things and they just came and said look it's just been it's just been a virus it's just it's, 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 it's burnout or something well they never said burnout actually they said um, I can't remember what they said. They just said it was it was maybe down to stress. Mm. Um, so I was kind of going, yeah, well, I suppose I am doing a bit too much. Like, but never says to them, yeah, I'm snorting cocaine from Thursday to Tuesday. I'm drinking alcohol all the time, smoking cannabis every single day. I'm working, I'm watching other people's kids. I'm trying to do, I'm surviving on three or four hours sleep a night. I'm not really drinking any water. Everything I eat, I'm bringing back up because the doctor noticed that I had been losing weight and was sending me because he thought I was anorexic. And again, it comes back to that, you know, having that secret. So for a while, mm. for about a year, um, I wasn't eating anything and it was almost like, you know, on an unconscious level, it was like, well, that's my secret. Do you know what I mean? I'm not really eating, I'm, I'm, I'm mm. keeping food for myself and, and look how slim I am. Look how much weight I'm losing, look how great I look. Um, and then once the doctor sussed that out and referred me to the, the Royal Edinburgh Hospital, which is one of the main mental health hospitals um, in Scotland, that I was kind of going, oh, 
he sussed me out. He knows my secret. He knows what I've been doing. So pretty much overnight, I went from doing that to, to binging. So I would sit and eat and then go home and just binge and binge and binge and then bring the whole lot back up. And I was mm -hmm. managing to maintain my weight. So that was keeping me... I was, I was able to have, you know, I was able to have the secret. So, as I say, that was 1999. Between 1999 and 2001, when I went out to China, I had that two years of really challenging things and really kind of going, do you know, I'm, I'm not going to drink, I'm not, I'm not going to drink this weekend, and really um, deciding that there was, there was another life there should I choose to do it. I didn't know mm. how to do it, I didn't know how to change, I didn't know what this other life would look like. I just knew that I didn't want to die. I knew that I didn't want to leave my kids without a mum. Mm. I, knew that I'd, I knew that I wanted to get better for my life, but I just never knew what that was. So when I was out in China, um, I just, I became this person that I kind of was able, that I was able to sort of identify, that I was able to have a bit of clarity around. I was kind of going, oh, do you know what, I can actually be like these people. And I studied the people that were there and studied the excellence in each one of them and mm. thought, do you know, if I was a bit more like that, and then I would practice what I'd studied in that person that day, I'd practice it when I was chatting to someone else the next again day. So mm. I would look at how they, maybe how they stood when they were talking, I would look at how they, while constantly kind of battling the, the anxiety and the panic and sort of saying, no, you'll stay at bay. So went through two weeks, you know, as I say, 52 people I'd never met before in my life. Um, came home, had really bad jet lag, slept for like, I don't know, I think it was like 18 hours solid and nobody could waken me and got up and I thought, God, I've just had the maddest dream that I was out in China and like, and then looked around and there was my suitcase and all my stuff and I was like, my God, i actually done that. I'd, I'd done that. Um, I can do whatever I want. I, if I can do that, I can do literally anything I want to do. And then I was kind of going, um, and, and I managed to panic. And I just, I told the panic. If you're coming, you come now. Because if not, then you're not coming for the rest of the day. And it was the first time that I realised, do you know what, I'm actually in control. I control this. Mm. I am, and it starts with, you know, like, I control how I think. I can control how I feel. I can, like this is the, the power's mine why have I never realized this before so I kind of made a uh, um, decision that that was it I was going to you know I was going to stop taking drugs I was going to stop drinking I was going to do these things and then like three weeks later it would be six o'clock on a Saturday morning and I would be finishing off a bag of coke and drinking Jack Daniels and and then I would be like oh I can't believe that's happened again but I never beat myself up about it do you know like next again day I would get up and go oh I was about to swear, I'm all right to swear on this mm -hmm. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, fuck's sake, done it again. Um, and then I'd be like, well, never mind, you know, because the part of me that was wanting to beat me up, the part of me that was going, fuck's sake, why did you do that? The, the other part that had been established that day in that hospital mm. bed that was saying, please stop this, the kinder part, the, the more kind of positive aspect of my thinking was going, so what? So what, mm -hmm. you've done it. Like, what difference does it make? Like, it's an oops. Like, look how well you've done over the last two or three weeks. Yeah. Like, if you can get that two or three weeks to become four and five weeks, five or six weeks, seven or eight weeks, like, don't worry about it. And then there was other bit in my head that was kind of like, well, we think she's failed and blah, and, and I would have these really mad kind of discussions going on in my head. Um, so then in, I started volunteering for a charity and within a couple of months that they'd been in the charity I was um, mentoring young people who were leaving the care system who had been looked after and accommodated by the care system and were making that transition into independent living and I had a lot in common with them and at that point I really wanted to go and work on drugs and alcohol I wanted to go and help people who had been through all the same sort of stuff as me and, blah. and then I kind of stopped and went 
am I doing this because I genuinely believe I have something to give back or am I doing this because I believe there's a there's a there's a healing that needs to be done in me and I'll be able to do it with these people and we can create a tribe and we can all be bitter and you know and 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 um and, and annoyed at the world together. So I was like, right, well, if I work with children who are leaving the care system, then I can kind of, I can identify with how that might feel, you know, having that disconnection, having that belief that you're unlovable, having that belief that, um, you know, the world's just not set up for someone like you and how do you navigate that? And I thought, you know, I've got the skills and the tools to do that. I think I could be good at that. So within a couple of months, um, a charity was called Move On. It's one of the leading charities in Scotland now. Yeah. and. Um, I, uh, within a few months, was invited to apply for a job for the house and education team. So it was working, it was going around the schools in Edinburgh and it was teaching young people the, the, the just the life skills of, mm. like, how do you go about looking for somewhere? Do you know, when you hit 15, 16, and we started off working in the most sort of economically inactive and socially deprived areas in, in Edinburgh. So it was sort of saying to young people, these are the young people that were at the highest risk of potentially becoming homeless, mm-hmm. um, of potentially being you're rejected from the family home of potentially not having been able to get a job potentially being drawn into criminality and um, so we were sort of saying you know if that happens like where, where would be the first place you would go to look for a job how would you do that so we created these games and we worked with children as again we worked with young people who'd been through the care system and got them to help us to create these games that we then took into these schools these games are all patented now and are part of the, the charity. So that was 2003, 2004, early 2004. And within six months, I was, you know, I was working for them. Mm. Within a year, I was then heading up the project that I had started off volunteering for. So the guy who had been doing it before me was a guy called Lucas. He was a Sweden, a guy from Sweden. And he came to me one day and he said, have you ever thought about floating Viv? And I was like, no, I've never even heard it. And he was like, it is absolutely amazing. He was like, and we um, we could take the other mentors, we could all go, as a group of us could go. Um, and I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. I was like, you know, what is, tell me all about it. So he was like, look, you just have to go, you'll love it. So I went and um, when I went to go and float, the um, girl left me in the room and there was like this sort of pod style, like a mm-hmm. coffin-like structure. And she said, you just, you know, have a shower and then you get in, um, you can have a light on, you can leave the pod up, you can leave the lid up or you can have it down, you can do all these different things. And I was like, right. And she left the room and I thought, am I fuck getting in there? It's, <laughs> it's a coffin. I, I made a decision in 1999 in that bed that I wanted to live. Why on earth would I get into a coffin-like structure, close the lid on top of myself and be on my own with me, just me, nobody else? Like, I just fucking hate me at the best of times. Like, why would I even think about this? Mm. And then it was like, then the other wee voice was gone, come on, Viv. Lucas has said this would be really good for you and it would be a really good experience. And I thought, right, I'll get in, but I'll leave the lid open. So I got in and I was like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? So inflotation involves 25 centimetres of body temperature water and half a tonne of Epsom salt. And it it just suspends you. So what I was saying earlier on about the bones and how they fuse and form, when we take to our feet, our our skeleton inside us then becomes like a a scaffold. Everything's attached to it and Mm. it never gets a chance to rest and realign, never gets a chance to just be and just float inside the body until I got into that float tank. So... I'm lying in the float tank and I'm, I've kind of lay back and I've still got the light on and the, the lid's open a wee bit and I thought, here, this is actually all right. This is, this it feels quite nice. Do you know, it feels quite relaxing and 
maybe just shut the lid, shut the lid, and then I thought, maybe just put the light off. So I put the light off, and I was like, oh, it's really dark, it's like dark, dark. It's like super dark, and but this is actually really nice. This is actually, I wonder what's. And then the next thing, boom, I just remember having this vision of floating in and out of the walls of this therapy, this therapy center that had float tanks in it, that had people doing one-to-ones in it, that had a creche out the back for people mm. to bring their children. Then I floated through reception and there was a, a, a the um, booking, the, um, the appointment book mm-hmm. and um, do you know and there was like two days were dedicated to the NHS there was do you know there was like a wee dog in the centre there were all these different things that was like oh my god that would be and I owned it and I was the one that the that, that thing that owned it and I just had this sense of reconnection mm. and when I was about four years old I had an experience and I don't know what the experience was but I remember running away and I remember running and hiding in long grass and I remember my heart totally pumping out of my body and I remember seeing myself coming out of myself looking down on myself and then floating away and I never remembered that at all until I was in that tank that day and it was almost like a, a homecoming it was almost like like I could feel it was like almost like that that part of me that came out and then just kind of vaporised suddenly appeared again and integrated and I remember then thinking I've got work to do there's stuff I need and I got out that tank well I then heard time's up and just about shit myself um, (laughs) and jumped up in the water and I was like and then I was kind of like oh man I can't oh I need to get this up so I was getting that open and it was in the dark and blah blah and I jumped to it and I sort of stood and ran the shower and I stood in the shower and I was there and I was going what the fuck just happened there? Like, <laughs> where did it, like, holy mm. shit. And then came out the shower and went over and felt the water and I was kind of going, it's just water. It's just like, I've just been lying, like, what happened there? Something, so I was kind of like that fire in the belly. It was that, mm. that's exactly what fire in the belly is. It's mm. an experience like that. And uh, and I got out and I was like, oh my God, I need to know more about this. I need to, like, I can help people with this. This is going to be, this is going to be massive. Like you must be able to do this in loads of different places like everybody must be all over this and somebody must know everything about this and blah. and what I've found in life is when you say somebody everybody anybody generally the fingers are pointing back at you you think somebody would do something about this why is nobody doing anything about it why is nobody do-? and then you look at it and you think I'm the one that should be doing something yeah. so I got out and I said to the woman and I was like like really, oh my goodness, like uh, this and that and blah. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking about that. And do you know, it'd be a great idea to do that. Like what happened in there? And she said, yeah, it's a lovely spa experience. And I was like, no, 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 that's not a spa experience. I said, that's what you have is a mental health intervention. Like you, like, w- w- tell me more about it. And she was like, yeah, it's zero gravity. And it's, and I said, what does zero gravity mean? What does it do? What does it? And she was like, well, it just, it's just really relaxing. And it's, and I just thought, you I know absolutely nothing about this. <laughs> you know, you have such a fantastic resource tool here for people mm. who are struggling with addiction, with mental health, with all these different things, and you and you and you and you just you just you just waste them because you've not even studied it. You've not even looked at like I need answers and I need them quick. So um, so I kind of mulled on that for about a year, kind of going, that was an amazing experience. Went back a couple of times, and every time, like the next time I went back, I felt like I was in there for like four days. I was kind of going, oh shit, this is really boring. And, like I want to get back to that experience I had the first time I was really impatient and then the third time I got in my mind was kind of going well the first experience was absolutely amazing and blew you away the second experience was one of the most boring things you've ever done in your life let's see what the third experience is like but that's what happens is because flotation is what we call a clean experience so mm. it means that we have nothing to compare and contrast it to except for being back in the womb 
because everything that happens every second of every day we compare and contrast to things that have previously happened to give us our version of reality okay. so hence why something might happen and somebody freaks out and somebody else is going oh for god's sake like get a grip of yourself and somebody else say like, what do you mean get a grip of myself did you not just hear what he said or see what she done and you're kind of going yeah but it's like just chill but they're perceiving things very differently and that's what happens in flotation so um and then sort of after my third one where my mind and my body were going right well it could be this it could be that and you know just so my mind was saying like just let go just let go and see yeah. where it takes you and for someone who'd only just managed to get control that whole letting go piece was like oh but if i let go i'll go back to chaos i'll go back to it and it was that feeling of but i'll be vulnerable and vulnerability leads to more vulnerability yeah. vulnerability leads to hurt to pain to abuse to trauma like vulnerability is no a good place um but then again the wee voice was gone just try it just just try it just allow yourself so the third float was really pivotal for me and then i decided you know what i'm going to start seeing who else is doing this and what's happening in the world so i started researching it that was um 2004 yeah. 2006 my mum passed away and that kind of knocked me so for six months i was kind of back at the bottom of a jack daniels bottle back at the end of a line of cocaine it, the the use was increasing the use was getting more it, got, it was getting back to every single weekend mm. it was uh, all these different things till i then woke up and just kind of went you know what you stop this um so again it was like never mind you've had a wee slide like you can go forward everything's going to be fine um what did you learn from it because if you keep hanging on to the emotion and keep mm. giving yourself a beating up for what's happened, then you're never really going to so like let it go. Just let it go. So that was 2004. Uh, that's sorry, that was 2006. 2007, I decided to go back to college. I decided to kind of go right. If I want to know more about this approach, then. I, I need to know more about mental health in general. I need to know more about the health and social care system. How do we, how have we, where did the NHS come from? How have we built these, what are the models and the, the theories that we have built this whole system on? Um, and what does that actually mean for human dynamics? Then went to university and studied social sciences. So looked at social psychology, looked at um, social, uh, social psychology, looked at uh, anthropology, various different things, and became really interested in why do we become a different person depending on who we're in front of. Mm. Because for me, all of my life, depending on who you were, depended on who I was. When I went out to China, I was kind of going, oh, I really like that part about that person. I'll, I'll, I'll become that. I'll become a bit of that. Um, so while it used to be a negative thing, I had in the, the, sort of the, the seven, eight years previous to that, mm. I was starting to turn it into a positive thing and I was starting to, but I wanted to know more about it. So, um, I then started studying neuro-linguistic programming and absolutely loved it. So much of it just made perfect sense to me. The whole towards and away from, you know, the motivational filters. If you always move your life away from the things you don't want, then you're placing your focus on the things you don't want. Mm. Rather as identifying the things you do want and acting like you already have them. So that was a huge thing. And then there was a the law of requisite variety, which states the person with the most flexibility of behaviour is a person who holds the most control within any system or mm. any, um, you know, within, within themselves or any situation. Mm. And that was really interesting for me because 
I had became very much, it needs to be like this, it needs to be like this because if it's not like this, then it's chaos. So I had very much been, like I, I believe in life, we, we float down a river and if we can keep in flow, we're in the middle of the river. We're just flowing and things are just happening as they're happening. We're dealing with things, we're, be, we're, we're a responder, not a reactor. Um, but what I'd found was one of the banks is called rigidity. The other mm. bank is called chaos. And what happened a lot in my life is I would go, Rigidity, like has to be like this, has to be like that, blah, blah, blah. and then when things would go wrong, I'd go fuck it and get absolutely hammered, and I'd go choom, straight over to the bank of chaos, and it would be, and then chaos would get too much, and I'd be like, right, fucking structure back, and I need to do without realizing, without stopping, and actually just enjoying that flow, mm -hmm. that middle bit of the river. Um, so NLP totally changed my life, turned things around for me. Then went and studied neurolinguistic, uh, studied timeline therapy and hypnosis. Went back and done a master practitioner in neurolinguistic program in timeline therapy and hypnosis. Was then introduced to a guy, uh, Gavin Murphy, who was a, a hypnotherapy um, mm -hmm. teacher trainer. So I went and done clinical hypnotherapy. I then went to London and studied with Paul McKenna and Dr. Richard Bandler. And when I managed to get I just bumped into Paul McKenna one day in the in the hotel that I was staying in. And it was kind of like, oh, we stood chatting, you know, leaning against the wall like we were old school buddies that had just <laughs> bumped into each other to, after 20 years. Um, and I was saying to him, wouldn't it be great if we could just deactivate the amygdala? If we could, you know, I've heard of this thing called amygdala, uh, the amygdala de, 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 de amygdala depotentiation technique. God, I couldn't get that out of there. Um, <laughs> and, and that's it. And he said, and I knew he was doing stuff along that. And he said, yeah, it's called havening. Like, it's amazing. It's this and that. So we stood and chatted about havening. And basically for havening, you have an event. You give that event meaning based on how you're processing your landscape. If you had inescapability or perceived inescapability, you have the potential to store that experience as trauma. Everything you see here, feel, smell, taste, and everything you feel on this, everything you see here, you feel, smell, taste on the outside mm. and everything you feel or that happens on the inside locks itself into what's called an amper receptor and it becomes like a beacon that's in your in your con in your conscious awareness of these are the things that could potentially mean you are in a serious really desperate situation so maybe like so for example you're maybe in a crash in a car crash and for anyone that's ever been in a car crash you know yourself when you know you're going to be in a car crash mm. or you can see something unfold and it's like and at that moment it's like the whole world goes oh and slows right down and you're kind of going no like that that's the prefrontal cortex going offline because it's like shit you don't need to be thinking in the moment you need to move to action mm. so and it's the fight or flight kicking in um but at that point where you hit the car and it goes boom and then you kind of go and you're back into the prefrontal cortex, you're back into that, oh, oh my God, like, I can't, I can't believe, and you're back into this sort of, mm. the, 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 re the reality of life. At that point of that car crash, at that point of impact, you maybe smelt new car scent in the car. You mm. were maybe listening to Bob Marley. It was maybe a yellow car that you hit. There was maybe a lady with a red jacket standing going, oh, as she watched it. Um, so all these things are encoded in this amper receptor, which means, Six months later when you're walking through the shopping centre and Bob Marley's playing in the background and you're standing looking in Thornton's deciding what ice cream to get and you suddenly go, oh, I really do feel well. 
I can feel my, oh, my heart's really starting to go, oh, my stomach's going, oh, shit, I think I'm having a panic attack. And then because you're thinking about having a panic attack, your mind's going, oh, you're having a panic attack. Oh, fuck, right, alarm systems, alarm system. And then you walk out the shopping centre going, oh my God, oh my God. And then you sit in your car and you think, oh, it was because it's, it's because the shopping centre was too warm. It's because it was too warm. It's because there was too many people about. It was because it was too big. Mm. So these things, because at that point, the amper receptors open, these mm. things all then go, chinga, 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 and they all filter into it. So the next time someone says, Joy, I got the shopping centre, you go, yeah, all right. And then your mind goes, oh shit, remember the shopping centre. Yeah. Oh, so you start to feel, and you're kind of going, but I feel a bit anxious, I feel a wee bit, and then you get to the shopping centre and you say to your friend, oh, I'm really sorry, I can't go in there. I'm feeling really, oh, I don't know, I'm just feeling really strange. I'm starting to feel a bit hot and I'm, nah, because the unconscious mind is going, oh, like this is part of this thing, this is part of this thing. There's a potential that Bob Marley's going to play in there. And if Bob Marley plays in there, there's a potential that could be that. But what happens is these things start to encode themselves into so many different things within your life. So what happens is you start to become anxious all the time. You start to have panic attacks all the time. And this really started, understanding this really started to kind of make go, oh. well, how do we go about switching that off? How do we go about doing that? And havening does that. So what havening does, so in the point of impact, what happens is you have a protein in your brain called PKZ, which sticks this AMPA receptor in place. What happens in havening is it allows the AMPA, allows the, the, the amygdala to open, allows the AMPA receptor, because by inviting the mind into delta wave, opens the calcium channels within the brain. Delta wave and calcium create a thing called calcium neuron. Calcium neuron unsticks PKZ, so it's called dephosphorylation, but unsticks it. So it means that AMPA receptor goes right back into the amygdala and shuts it off. So it means you can be in the shopping centre, it means you can listen to Bob Marley, it means you can listen, or you can put yourself mm. into all these different things because you've removed the emotional component from the memories that harvested them. And this interested me because mm. I was like, oh, hang on a minute, right, if I can remove the emotional components from some of the memories that I have, I mean some of my life is dark and I can't, I can't even get in and access what it is that happened in that time. So for example, me wetting myself when I was a kid, when my mum came anywhere near me, I remember that I wet myself, but I can't remember why. I can't remember what it is that she was doing. When I think of, bless you, Thank when you. I think of, um, you know, some of the, 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 the experiences that I had as a kid, some of the traumatic experiences yeah. that only came to me when I was in similar positions as an adult and I had these flashbacks of things and I was having these nightmares about stuff. Yeah. I was kind of going, so when I so when I when I was chatting with Paul McKenna that day and we were chatting about the Haven, I was like, I need to do that. I need to do, like I just think it'll be so beneficial for me, but it'll be so very very beneficial for the clients that I'm working with, um, because in um, so this was. So this was a real sort of revelation for me. At that point, I was living in Northern Ireland. I had removed myself from the environment that I had in Scotland, because that was the last thing that I kind of needed to heal. By 2010, I'd kind of started to change my life. I was still going out at the weekends and mm. I was partying, but to a much lesser degree. Um, I was, you know, I'd, I'd been studying at university. I'd really kind of screwed the head a bit, and, but I was still having people come into my house at three in the morning, drunk, with her, with her, the guy that they were having an affair with behind her husband's back, going, can we just come in here? Um, I was having people on their way home for the pub bringing a carrier at two o'clock in the morning, like, yeah, we've got, and I'm like, yeah, come in and you come, because I'd created that space of safety for people and felt I couldn't take it away because mm. it was almost like, but when, what will they go and do? Like, well, fuck, they'll go and find somebody else to have a party with, but at that time, I never, I was still kind of, but if I move myself out of this environment, but I also decided it was time for me, it was decided, time for me to redesign design who I was to really look at what I had learnt over that time. 
So coming to Northern Ireland, studying in NLP, studying in Havenin and doing all these different things enabled me to kind of nurture this version of me that I always knew was in there but had been so covered by pain, by fear, by yeah. uh, you know guilt, hurt, shame, you know sadness, all these different things. Um, so after I studied in, in, Neuralink, in um, Havenin Technique I then went to um, Oxford and studied with a girl there in a thing called Spectrum Coaching and Spectrum Coaching looks at that mind body approach and looks at um, so rather than saying right, so rather than calling something anxiety so it's like do you know when you're talking about anxiety mm. what I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about it tell me where do you feel it in your body oh it's, it's like it's here it's my solar plexus what shape is it oh it's like a big block like a brick what colour is it oh it's like it's red it's like a big red brick what I want you to do is I want you to bring the focus of your attention to that big red brick mm. and what I want you to do is I want you to now think of the word calm and I want you to tell me where have you stored oh calm it's across my shoulders what, what shape is calm oh it's like a, an arc shape what colour is it oh it's like blue hey, what I want you to do is I want you to breathe into that blue arc shape across your shoulders and I want you to breathe it right down I want you to breathe it right down into your chest I want you to go and see when it hits that red brick and stops think how could that how can that that, that blue penetrate that red brick what would it have to do and then you've got people kind of going oh well it would have to you're not talking about calm and you're not talking about fear or anxiety or whatever it is you're talking about a blue arc and, and a red brick and that really fascinated me because I was like we store things in terms mm. of shapes and colours so if I said to you do you know I left here the other day there and Judith said something and god the minute I go out the door I just seem red you'd instantly think oh Judith said something to piss her off or if I said to you um, do you know I felt really good yesterday but I, just, I, just, I don't know I just feel a bit blue today you'd instantly think oh what's wrong you would instantly on an unconscious level go well our mood must have changed or my friend got a new car. The minute I seen it, I was green. You'd instantly think, oh, she was envious of. So this made perfect sense for me. And it was like, do you know, I, I talk in that way. I would say, I would use colours for things. Mm. Um, so, so I went and studied with her. I um, threw a, a job that I had when I worked in, um, when I came to Northern Ireland, I had got an auricular acupuncture qualification. Um, so, and then I decided that I wanted to do something like light and fluffy. So I went and trained as a laughter yoga instructor. I, um, so, so there's lots of different things that I have now pulled together because I find that when, when I went, I went for counselling at one point in my life and I said to the girl, you know, this had happened to me, that had happened to me, you know, I was, domestic violence, sexual abuse within the, the relationship, you know, always and really poured this stuff out and every, mm. as I was mentioning more and more stuff you could see her eyes widening and widening and sort of looking at me and, and then she went, so how did that make you feel? And I looked at her and I went, are you for real? Did you just fucking ask me that? <laughs> and I'm like, like I, want, I, mean, I really wanted to say it like I want to punch you right in the face right at this moment in time mm. but um, but I just thought fucking crazy women but, and left and I thought I'm not going back to counselling like, and spent weeks really trying to undo what she had done in that one session mm. so there was as well as the you know how does that make you feel so what you're telling me is and repeating things back to me and it was just affirming I was hearing it in her voice rather than mine I was affirming how how broken I was how you know like and, and I don't believe anybody's broken but at that point in my life I did um, and I kind of went, you know, I'll maybe just go back into the silence of this trauma because this is freaking people out. Um, went for counts, went for CBT. One of my core beliefs was I am stupid. My first session, she explained things in a way that, I, like, like, there's a great saying in Scotland, this is a bear in my biscuit arse could understand it. Basically, like a gingerbread man, a biscuit could mm -hmm. understand what you're saying. Um, so she spoke to me like I was a bear in my biscuit arse. And, uh, and, and I was kind of going, okay, why does she, I'll, I'll give her a chance. So I went back for the second one and she was talking 
well above what I could understand and I was thinking I am stupid so I retreated into that silence and retreated into if I'm going to heal I need to heal myself I need to find the things for me because there's nobody out there that's going to be able to help somebody that's as fucked up as me um, which as I say then led me on that journey but then I kind of got to thinking well if I'm like thinking like this maybe there's other people that are the same so I was telling people about my findings as I was going along I was chatting to people when I was learning things in NLP did you know this and did you know that and did you know that we're motivated in these different ways did you know that um, you know, the cause and effect. Like, if we like, are, are we at cause or are we at effect? Do we constantly sit and go, "Oh, it's no my fault. They done this. They done that." Or do we go, "Do you know what? I've had these experiences, but I chose for the last ten years to carry that pain, to carry that guilt, that fear. It doesn't belong to me." So, and the more I was chatting to people, they were going. That makes perfect sense. And do you know that reminds me of. Mm. And I was finding people were opening up in a really different way. Um, so I started doing one-to-one -one work, and but it was but it was more my intention now was I have something that I think would be useful for other people to to know. I have strategies, I have tools, I have models that I've created myself that I think other people would have huge benefit from. And my intention was my intention around helping me heal was my intention around what I could get from it. No, my intention, my, my, my intention very much was I have a gift that I can give to other people. Mm. Um, and that has always been a theme. Like recently I was approached to um, deliver at the Trauma Summit in Belfast, which is a massive thing. It's a huge summit with people coming from all around the world who work in trauma. And um, I was asked to go along and do a presentation on the Havening Technique, which I was delighted. You know, I'm, I've like, I've been doing it for three mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. I am um, you know, I'm, I'm well experienced in it, I know a lot about it. But then I was kind of going, right, hang on a minute. So to start with, I was going, yes, happy days, this will be a great platform. And, and then I was like, right, Viv, you're letting ego just step right in the way there. It's all about what will you get from that? Um, you're not thinking about the technique itself. And then I was kind of going, well, the technique itself would have much more kudos if there's a guy down in, in Dublin who I trained with, Stephen Travers, a fantastic therapist in so many different modalities. He's the UK and Europe head for Havening and I know that he really wanted to talk at that conference and I know he had been in talks with the organisers as well but I have a great relationship with them hence why they'd came to me so I went back to them and said look I would love to and I'm so honoured that you've asked me and I would love to do this however I just think in terms of credibility yeah. for the technique I think Stephen delivering it would be so much better. He's the UK and Europe head. He can talk, talk about latest developments. He can talk. It just he'll he'll know so much more, so much more than me on a strategic and developmental level mm. of this technique, and and they were kind of like, all right, so well, well, yeah, that's you know that that's great. But what then happened was a week later they came back and said, but we're so impressed with the way you speak and we're so impressed with what you're doing in Hydries mm. that we'd like to give you a talk about your raft programme. Okay. Because the raft programme, as, as I've said, it's about it's a drawing together spectrum coaching, the Haven and the NLP, okay. like all the different things in unison with flotation. So what happens is when we have, as I was saying about havening, you know, we get the mind from what's called gamma. And gamma is the highest brain wave state. Mm -hmm. And it's usually, it's over between 40 and 50 megahertz and up. And it's where the brain's processing information really, really quickly. Um, through the havening technique, we bring the mind down into delta, which is the, the, the state of deep restful sleep. But if you can get someone to access an event that's happened and it's constantly making them so, so anxious, mm. and you get them to access it in that nice, calm state, they're able to kind of go, well, do you know what, actually, that that's because of that, and that's because of that, and that was because, and that, that was really, there was nothing I could do about that. Rather is going, oh, I can't think about that. Every time I think about that, it makes me really upset. Um, 
But then what I found is then when you put someone into a float tank, it brings their mind up into theta state, which is your natural learning and consolidation state. Mm. So it takes them on that, neuro, that, that neuroplasticity journey of gamma, delta, back up to theta. And in the natural learning and consolidation state, in the freedom of the float tank, with no gravity, with no external stimulation coming in, the mind and the body can go, do you know what? That makes sense because of this and blah, blah. And, that, and you're free from a therapist because every decision we have made about ourselves, other people and the world, we have stored it. It's, it's, in, it's in us. So in order to reverse that or, so, or in order to make sense of it, we need to be free from everything. We need, we, it would really benefit us to have that really clear safe space, which is what happens in the float tank. Because regardless of how therapist, good a therapist anybody is, they could be at the top of their game, they could be the best at the, whatever. We're only ever making we, we we know models and theories about the body and the mind through our own experiences, through through reading, through studying, through all these different things. But the best person, the best therapist is you because you're the person that knows that. And regardless of how good a therapist you are, you're only ever using your knowledge of the human mind and body on someone else's human mind and body, which might be totally different for them. Um, so yes, yeah, so I started the RAFT program, started that about three years ago, so I have been, and I only have done like a couple of sessions a week, and then this last year I've kind of done a lot more, so I'm in the middle of doing research, um, I'm doing a survey monkey with the people who've been through the program and who've mm -hmm. used the sessions, and um, so I'm going to be delivering that at the, the trauma summit, but that was a huge accolade to, and again, that was one of the moments where in life I just kind of stopped, placed focus of attention on my breath, and just kind of visualised that is one of the visions that I had for myself back all the years ago was when I got out of that float tank was mm. people need to know about this I want to be and, and it was like who's doing this and where are they and who's talking about this and who's delivering on this and who knows more about this that I can that I can that I can speak to and just sought out the people so is that then in the UK I have now became that person so you know and especially in Northern Ireland so I, I had a I had a sort of I chat with the universe, right? I talk with the universe quite a lot where I kind of just sit, it's usually in the float tank and I'm kind of visualise things and then I'm like, right, mm. it's out there, I'll lock it in like I've already got it, I've already done that, right, that's done. So even while I'm working towards something and every day, my mantra every day is the only expectation I have of today is no expectations. So then that way, if something comes along that completely blindsides me, that is really upsetting or is really um, whatever it is, or it's it, it, uh, that I'm just like, oh, and I'm really kind of, oh my goodness. I then have the ability to go, right, hang on, what does this actually mean? And what can I do? What can I do in response to this, mm. rather as a knee-jerk reaction to it? And what would be the bit, right, think about who's all involved in this. And then I'm able to kind of go on that. Same as if I get totally blindsided by something that comes in that is so, so amazing. Like speaking at the trauma summit, it was totally mm. like, yes, happy days and blah. But then again, it's like, right, but what does this actually mean? What mm. are my intention for this? What is it? So. The only expectation, as I say, is no expectation. So when things come in, it's it's more it's more about right. How do how, is this is this really for me? And do I go with this, or is this something that I can pass on to somebody else? Is this is this part of my journey, or is this something that I've seen someone else doing that I would really like to do? So I'll kind of do it, but do it half-heartedly. Well, I could really hand it over to them. Mm. Um, so so yeah. So I'm kind of at a point. So I was going to say in a nutshell, that's been a. 50 minute nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your next question? <laughs> <laughs> this is the easiest, uh, the easiest interview ever. Uh, you said there a while ago no one is broken. Mm -hmm. And you were quite 
categoric on that? Can totally. you can yeah. you expand on that? I believe that we are, nobody's broken. We're all, we're all cracked. Um, but we need to be cracked because the light has to get in somewhere. If we retreat and retreat and retreat, I believe we retreat. We kind of go from being this bubbly, like all kids are full of joy and fun, and we then get told, don't jump on that sofa, get down from that, leave your sister's hair alone. Why are you always putting your sister's pig? Sit there and be quiet. If you're, wait till your dad gets home. To, and, we're, and what happens is we then go from being joyful to like, hmm, why am I getting shouted at? And because we, up until age seven, we don't have the cognitive capacity, don't have the thinking ability to be able to challenge things. So if we're told that we're a bad boy or a bad girl, we're told that by a teacher that we're stupid because we can't read a word on a book, we are constantly told um, that we deserve this. Ha, you deserve that when you trip and fall, yeah. when the, 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 the dog nips your ankle because you've been annoying it all day, <laughs> you deserve that. Yeah. Then we start to believe that these are bad things and we deserve bad things. So when, as, as we get older and bad things happen, it's like, yeah, well, that, I, I deserve that. Um, so we retreat into the darkness. We create layers around ourselves of, you know, a layer of anger. Like, it's always me that gets it out. My sister never gets it out. I'm always the one that get. And then something else happens and we get caught out for it. And it's like, oh my God, I'm going to be caught. I'm going to put, and there's a layer of guilt. And then there's fear and then there's sadness. And then, so we end up in this darkness. We end up mm. in this, in this, this backing off, almost like we back into a corner where we have no options except to just fight forward. Um, and what then tends to happen is we put up our umbrella. We put up our umbrella to 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 um, to save us from all the things that are falling on us. But what happens is we walk out on a sunny day and we've still got this umbrella up to save us from the trauma, to save us from the things that we don't like. And we, we are in this darkness. But then there has to be a wee crack to let the light in. So when things happen and we have these wee cracks, we have these wee opportunities to kind of step out into who we are. We have the opportunity to step out and like, it's funny because I was on um, a TV programme recently and I was talking about, um, do you know, about this very thing about how none of us are broken, we're all cracked, some of us are completely fractured. At one point in my life I was completely fractured but I was still a whole person mm. but I just never knew how to bring all these bits in. Mm. Um, but I believe everybody's awesome. I believe everybody has the ability to be and do whatever they want and, uh, you know, to follow their dreams, to follow their passions, to, you know, to really make a difference in the world in general, to heal the world one flow at a time. I believe that if we, if we create an intention that we can, we can go and we can chase that. Um, so I believe that we're all flawed. I believe that we're all awesome. So mm. I believe everyone else are flossom. And I was kind of going, that's my new word. That's what we're going to, that's what we're going to call it. Because I, I, I think if we tell people, if people think that they're broken, there's like sometimes when you, sometimes if something's broken, it just gets put in the bin. Sometimes if things are broken, mm. then it's fixed back in a way that's, 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 that's maybe got a bit missing or sure. get, um, where I think if we, if we all just think that we're just fracked or we're mm. fractured or cracked or something like that. And I don't believe like, I, and a, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing now is around change and looking to change the paradigm around mental health and change the paradigm around the language that we use. You know, if, if you constantly say, oh, I suffer from anxiety, I suffer from fibromyalgia, I su no, I live with, I live with trauma. My, my story lives inside me. It's a, 
but it's my story. Everybody's story lives inside them. Hmm. Do you know? And I, I like, I would never turn my back on my story. I would never ever like kind of go, oh, that that wasn't me. Do you know? Like at one point in my life, and it's only been in the last sort of, three or four years I've actually admitted this. At one point in my life, I would get drugs for me, but then I would get drugs for my friends, and then my friends' friends would get them to get drugs from me because they knew I could get it cheaper from it. But it seems people say that I was a drug dealer. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not, I just I just get you know I just do favors for my friends. Mm-hmm. I was a drug dealer. I look back on it and I'm like, you know, I was getting them and handing them on to other people. Mm. That's a drug dealer. Mm. Um, but you know, and things like you know dancing in a cage at nightclubs and yeah, things like you know being homeless and living like I have everybody has skeletons in their closet and the more we try to hide our skeletons the more they fall out at unopportune and unexpected moments and the more we kind of go where if you kind of go and again it's going back to I spoke earlier about you know hating that vulnerability and kind of going oh vulnerability leads to more vulnerability Um, but it's because I was making I was allowing myself to be made vulnerable through being smashed through chasing drugs through through doing whatever see now I love vulnerability because vulnerability is the one place that you can really grow and develop the more it's learning to understand vulnerability and learning to really embrace vulnerability and step out there do you know when I first started kind of talking if you spoke to me I spoke very much about the science of floating I spoke about the science of all these things and I spoke about you know how how qualified I was and I spoke about the academics behind things because I thought Nobody wants to listen to the fact that um, I was a fuck up, because that was how I seen it. It was like I was a fuck up and I took drugs and oh my god, like and I had, I had an affair and yeah. I was really promiscuous and I gambled loads of money and 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 at one point I had an eating disorder and then I had another eating disorder and but like nobody wants to know any of that stuff because and and people are going to judge me for that and nobody's going to love me for that. Do you know what? If you're going to judge me and you love me for that, fuck, it doesn't matter. I don't care. You're not my type of person. I don't really want to talk to you. Do you know what I mean? It's, I'm at that point where I'm just like, this is who I am warts and all um, and if by me stepping into vulnerability mm. and sharing these parts of me allows somebody else to kind of go do you know what and come up and open up because see standing in that silence of trauma it's a lonely horrible place to be and that whole I need to keep it quiet because I'm at this point in my job and I've got where I very much believe that the you know to shift that paradigm for mental health we need to be open and honest but we also need to be talking about things like you know like spirituality as like as we were talking about er- earlier spirituality is the breath spirituality is the the golden thread of life Do you know if we expire by taking our last breath we inspire by taking our first breath mm-hmm. and it's the breath that keeps us going but how often do we just stop and think about our breath. How often do we stop and just give thanks to our breath? Um, because it's the one thing, if we never had it, we just wouldn't yeah. be here at all. Um, so, yeah, back to your question. <laughs> no, I don't believe we're broken. I don't believe yeah. anybody's broken. I believe sometimes we're a wee bit lost, sometimes we're a bit fractured, yeah. sometimes we're not really very sure what the next step is, but we're certainly not broken. Okay. Do you love yourself? Yes. Yes. And, uh, in a sense of I accept myself for who I am I think I I make pretty good decisions I think I am a pretty decent mum my kids are now nearly 30 22 and 7 and um, the older ones so far have turned into really cool people um, that I just absolutely worship the ground they walk on. I admire everything that they've been through and everything that they've done. And I've seen them through lots of different things. I believe I am, I believe I'm a good wife. I believe I am pretty hot at cooking. I believe, you know, like, uh, and I I think, you know, I love myself for so many different reasons that are 
know the superficial look at me I'm great kind of thing it's mm. it's I accept myself for who I am and I get excited about every day and every morning I wake up and I'm like God, I'm so glad my feet are on the floor and my arse is pointing down the way it means I'm still alive <laughs> and the only expectation I have of today is no expectation um, because I think expectations we we then strive to achieve them and I think there's too much expectations on people um, especially in children you know like this 11 plus thing see when I came over here and I, I heard about this AQE and how people get tutors in and really push their kids and it's like you have to do this and you have to go to this school and blah. Mm. it's just like oh my god are you not just setting that child up to be really anxious all their life if your child's naturally academic of course sit, you know let them go on and let them do, let them do it and stuff but I just think there's and I mean that's just one example there's so many different different things that you think of like my son does MMA and um, there's one of the mums at the MMA class who stands at the side and she's like come on and you know she's really like so what's MMA? Mixed martial arts okay sorry right. so um, and my husband was a, ho was a, ho a coach a hockey coach mm. and he's like some of the hockey mums do you know were up at him like get my son on the ice he's the best and blah blah and it's like do you know like chill the fuck out missus <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's like you know I think if you let kids know that they're loved if you let kids know that there's that, that you're proud of them I think if you let kids know that there's that you're that, that, that you're that you're there that you know I mean every so there's not a day goes by that I don't tell my kids that, that I love them and that I'm proud of them um, especially my seven year old because he's the one that needs to hear it the most I mean, my daughter yesterday just um, she's studying to be an accountant and just landed a dream job that she was like went for the interview and she's like oh my god I just absolutely love it mm. um, they phoned her yesterday and told her exactly the same thing we absolutely love you, you you're just like the best person for the job it means our, our wages have gone up by 50% it means our prospects have gone up massively the studies that she's doing she's now going to get an opportunity to actually do these things in the workplace she's like and she phoned and she was like I've got the job but I said to them I'll need to phone my mum and I'll phone you back and I'm like <laughs> and of course and I burst out crying she was like are you crying and I was like I she was like Oh God, I'm crying now. So she burst into floods of tears and I was just like, oh my God, I am so well, proud of you. I just absolutely, where are you? Um, and I love myself for that stuff. I love myself for being able to put aside the things that I'm thinking about or that I'm doing mm -hmm. and just be there and present for someone. I'm proud of the fact that I can hold an open space here for people that's free judgment, that mm -hmm. people can sit and tell me about, you know, various different things that have happened. And I know that on an unconscious level, my unconscious mind's no gone. <gasps> so my eyes are no widening. The muscles at the side of my face here are no getting tight. The things that we can pick up that mm -hmm. like, you know, in terms of communication, roughly, and this is a theory that's been, you know, that's been, um, this disband it's been pulled apart by yeah. so many different things um, but in general we, we only 7% is roughly all communication is words you know 38% is the tone of the voice is the cadence of the voice is the, the inflection that we use in our voice um, and 55% is body language so even if you're sitting saying nothing but you're shocked you're going to go like that so and somebody sitting who's pouring mm. something out to you and I think you know and I love myself for having that ability and I love myself for having the the insight and the foresight to give thanks to what I've been through I am who I am because of mm. the experiences I've had no in spite of them like I wouldn't be who I am if I if I if I never became that that um, domestic violence um, you know wife. I wouldn't be who I am if I if I never had that experience of growing up with a parent who was struggling with trauma and addiction. And I hated it as I was growing up. But see now I'm kind of like, do you know I give thanks to that? I wouldn't be as and I suppose like one of the words that's always um, that's used when, when 
when I, when I chat with people, they always say, you're just so grounded, Viv. And I'm like, do you think? Do you know, but but I wouldn't be as grounded in this and I wouldn't be mm-hmm. as, and I hate the word non-judgmental because like we, well, the two words, um, we judge everything, we have to. Sure. Because, we, you know, we to make a decision, to get us like, in the morning, am I, am I gonna get up or will I just lie here? Mm. We'll judge that, we'll judge that thought. Like, so so, so non-judgmental is, is, is not something that I would, would use, but I'm just, uh, as I say, I have no expectations. Mm. I just kinda, you know, I work with, I work with what's happening at that moment in time, whether it's in a family situation or a work situation or, um, mm. so yes. Where would you say you're at in terms of your own journey? Scratching the surface, probably. Um, I know there's still some things that hold me back and I come up against them on a daily basis. And there's some things that I have absolutely no idea about. I don't, you know, when you look at Jahari's window, you know, there's mm. the things that you can see, there's the things that other people can see, but then there's that unconscious part that nobody can see as yet. Um, and I think I've stepped into that part so many times over my life that people mm. like that, you know, that ex-boyfriend, you'll never do that. Do you know, he couldn't see it, I couldn't see it, but I was damn fine I was going to do it. Do you know mm. what I mean? I was, I was, I was like, well, I am going to, don't know what it looks like. Um, again, waking up on that bed that day, that wee voice, you have a choice, keep going the way you go and die or change. Whose voice is that out of interest? I, I think that is, is the, the, I think it's who I am slowly but surely coming. I think that voice is, I believe we have different versions of ourselves within ourselves. I I, 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 I sat and thought about this thing about maybe 10 years ago. And what I done was I I sat and looked at, um, you know, in a business, this is what I was thinking, these are the things that go round in my head, Pete, bear with me. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot of these. In in, in a business, you know, like they have board meetings and stuff. I've Mm. never worked in the corporate world, Um, but I've seen it on the TV. I've seen it on the TV and, you know, and they'll have these like big fancy offices, have like big leather seats and big walnut table in the middle and, um, you know, like coffee machines at the side and fresh scones and all these different things. And in a board meeting, there's always a chair. And there's like, but at the really top of a big, huge, multi. So I had this vision in my head of this big, huge building somewhere in the States, mm. glass all the way around it, you know, like amazing views out here, there, and everywhere. And it was a, a, it was a meeting of all the top people in that organization. And there was the CEO, there was, um, and, and the CEO was interviewing every single person that was part of that organization. And he was bringing them in and introducing them in the room. You're my top team. And these are the reasons why you're in my top team. And I'm going to introduce you to the next person. And the next person came in and blah, blah. And I was like, this is, I'm going to do this as me. I'm going to, like, I am a business. Mm. I'm going to look at, so who is the CEO of me? Right, I'm not very sure, but this is what she'll look like. This is how she'll talk. These are the skills and the tools that I've picked up from studying other people's excellence all my life. Mm. And this is the version of me that's at the top of the table. The first person she's going to call in is the youngest version of me that she can that she can remember, and I remember the I remember when I was doing this, there was like a young girl came in about five about five years four or five years old in a yellow dress with green flowers on it. I remember the dress distinctly, and I've like I've, there's pictures of me with this dress on, and she came in and sat at the table and was just swinging her legs, and she was like, I just wanted this and I just wanted that, and then she was in floods of tears, and the CEO was like, Tell me how I can help you. 
Tell me what, when, what is it, what is it that happens when we know you're at play? And then anchored all that stuff and then invited the next person, the next person, the next one was a slightly older version of me and then a slightly older version of me. Then it was me that was the mum that came in and, and I never wear a pinny or anything like that but I came in with a pinny and a wee scarf thing tied around my head and a rolling pin and was kind of like, right, now, the things that I want, the things that I would like to feed mm -hmm. into this and blah, mm -hmm. and went round and filled that table and anchored that about 10 years ago. And it was like, right, so the voice, I think now, is that CEO. So I'm not even really very sure. I'm not even, I might, I might actually be who I am today. I'm not very sure. But I know I've got a long way to go. Mm. I know that I'm, I'm only scratching the surface of the things that I'm doing. I know that the last 20 years have been about me really starting to understand who I am, starting mm. to understand who other people are and starting to understand how we how we create this stuff. Um, and that, that never to be surprised or shocked mm. at, at anything, at anything that happens. I mean, as I say, again, going back to talking at the trauma conference, like last year I was saying, do you know the biggest gig of my life? I'm speaking at the um, 16th annual mental health conference up at McGee campus um, at Ulster University. Talk, you know, talking to students like really like these are the these these are the people that are going to change the future in Northern Ireland. These are the people that are you know that are working in mental health. There's oh, but there's also consultants and psychiatrists and doctors and blah blah, and they want me to talk. Oh my God, can I believe it? Like this is like mm. this is this is exactly um, what I've wanted, and then stop and like, well, why is it exactly what you wanted? And what is it? What's the message? What you're going to share with them? And how are you going to do that? And so after that, I was like, then again, stopped and was kind of spoke to the university and said. Right. send me my next challenge but also send me my next reward and let's see what they are so of course my next challenge is to develop raft as a group work as a thing that you know so you can work one-to-one -one or you can work one-to-many if you work one-to-one -one, then you're making difference for that one person mm. if you work one-to-many and make sure that you don't lose the authenticity or the integrity of what it is that you're doing mm. then you can help maybe six people at a time so if you do that three or four times then you're helping 24 people rather than just three or four people mm. so I'm, I'm getting my head around that model and I'm so that so the challenge is to get that done for June so is that when I get the reward, which is actually delivering this to people, then um, then I'll then I'll then I'll have it done. But as I say, that voice that voice is that is that CEO who's sitting mm. in that room in that glass filled room. She's sitting there just tapping away on her computer all day, just mm. phoning people and just she's she's up in the universe, just kind of going right. You're asking for what? Right, hang on a minute, we'll go and see if we can get this for you. That's it. That's it ordered. You've already got it, and that's the thing. I just I'm always like right. That's it on order. It's coming. It's going to be here. It's just like mm. thinking about going to Amazon and deliver it, ordering something, picking it and going, right, that's it, that's what I want. I'll put it in my basket. I'll buy it when I have enough money. I oh, fuck it, I'll just buy it now. And I'll just wait on it arriving. So, um, aye. Are you successful? <laughs> Depends how you measure success. I believe I'm successful. Okay. I believe I'm successful in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, but ultimately I'm successful because I have nurtured, I have given birth to, and I firmly believe that you give birth, so you don't give birth so you can take it back again. You don't give birth so you can dictate through all of that life. Mm -hmm. um, you give birth and you like, like, like my son went through a phase where he was smoking cannabis, he was taking cocaine. I had to let him do it. He went through a phase, we went through a girlfriend where he was with her for four years and she was 
disgusting. She was horrible to him. She spoke to him like he just fell off the bottom of her shoe. She, um, in, in front of everybody, and I would kind of gently say, how do you feel when she does that? Do you know, rather is, I'm going to fucking knock her out if he does <laughs> because that's what I wanted to say. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm successful because yeah. I have, um, I've nurtured, I've nurtured two fantastic specimens and I'm in the middle, I'm kind of seven years into my, my third project. <laughs> What does it say? It took, yeah, third time. It's like building a house. It's the the third time is the is the uh, it takes three to get it right. Mm -hmm. I think it's the, the saying. Do you feel in alignment now? But how do you mean in alignment? There's almost sort of imposter slash chameleon traits. That mm -hmm. Sort of you know there, and you sort of wondering what you know you're, you're going to China and what the different traits are of the different people, mm. what do you take on board, you know, and, and what is, you know, seeing different people. It's mm -hmm. almost, there seems to be this ongoing testing, you know, this testing and checking and testing and tech, you know, which, mm -hmm. which traits do you want to take on board, but mm -hmm. it almost sort of saying, well, have you become you or, you know, have you designed the, the, mm. the you, if that makes sense? Yeah, I, um, I suppose in certain areas, I am in perfect alignment. Mm -hmm. In other areas, I'm still just looking for that magic formula. I'm looking for, um, do you know, and, and I believe that, you know, I think if we stop studying excellence and we are completely in a line and we're completely finished and we're the done job and that then we're, then we're lying to ourselves. Because I firmly believe that there's, and again, it comes to that fluidity, like something can happen that you can, that can completely change who you are in that moment anything could happen you could you know you could lose a loved one you could win the lottery you could um you know all these and, and people say oh you know the lottery wouldn't change me um it, it will to a certain extent sure. you know it, it, it's and again it's about that because it, it'll change the currency it'll change that flow it'll change the 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 opportunities that you that you can then find yourself within um so i believe as i say i believe i'm in alignment in certain things um but there's other areas I don't think I'd want to be in alignment with. I'd always mm. want to be kind of on that kind of path of I've got I've got I've got oh fucking my way off again. I've got I've got oh fuck something else has happened. Mm. Um, because I mean, like I I remember being a kid and wanting to I had practiced this song and I really wanted to get up and sing it. And I was at my grand's and my grand was my grand was a fierce woman and um, and it was in the year and everybody was drinking and I was like and my mum was like Vivian's gonna sing a song and people just kept talking and I was behind the door and I was kinda going, I really want to sing but I didn't want to go out there until everybody's looking at me and everybody makes this big thing of me and I and I remember standing there being really, really scared and uh, and my mum says, Look look just come back in everybody's chatting and I was like, No, but I want to sing this song like just Will you tell everybody to? And she was like, "Oh no, come on, don't be silly. Just get in." And it was that at that moment in time, it was like, "Oh, nobody's interested in what I've got to say. I have, I've, um, I'm just like nobody wants to hear what I've got to say. My voice doesn't matter." Um, so when I went on this journey with with floating and you know wanting to start talking to the world about it, and but and it was like, "Yeah, I'm going to get up and I'm going to talk about this, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell everybody." And then I was kind of going, "Oh shit, nobody's going to be interested." 
nobody's going to really and I suppose still I would I would battle with that sometimes I still there is that bit of imposter syndrome in there there is that bit of you know and it's it always comes in at the last minute so it's sucker where I'm like yes I'm going to get up and do this and I'm just about to get up and talk and it's like the wee voice like, mm, who do you think you are? A little bit. And then the wee good voice is like off doing the shopping or it's away getting the getting the orders for the next amazing thing that's going to happen. Mm. And isn't it there to kind of go, hey, don't you listen to that voice, just you get up there and do whatever. So there is, there is a wee bit of that, but I think that's what keeps me grounded and I think that's what keeps me from kind of hiding up my own arse because it's an easy thing to do I've seen it happening to so many people mm. so I've seen it happen to people who they um, you know they get to a certain point and then it's like oh I've, t I've, I've totally made it and I'm going to do where like mine is about a message I have a message for people I have a message to give to people that you know and I, and I spoke about this I think it was at the last um, Think um, event that was it um, that we all have the opportunity to live more than once um, but it's not until we realise that we have that opportunity that we mm. get the chance to live the second time or third or fourth or fifth um, and I think we can we can reinvent ourselves and I believe a lot in rehabilitation and things like that and just because somebody has done something or said something doesn't mean to say that's who they are it's who they were at that moment in time sure. um, and we all work with the resources that we have if you are so even for example if you're if you're heroin dependent and your body is screaming and craving heroin and you cannot get it and you have absolutely no money and you're sitting and you're rattling and the only thing you can think about is take away this pain take away this pain and you're in your granny's house and there's a purse there and there's money in it and you take that money and you go and buy heroin and then your whole system just goes <sighs> at that moment in time you've done exactly what was right for you mm. it might be frowned upon and people might think it's not the right thing <laughs> mm -hmm. but at that moment in time you've done what was right for you um, and even into, I mean, obviously there's 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 the massive, huge, further end scale of that when you're talking about horrific, you know, child abuse or murder or something like that. But there's always uh, there's 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 always something that's that's going on that at that moment in time that was the right decision for you. Whether people like it or they don't like it, that's it's 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 irrelevant. Whether it's against the law or whatever, well, you'll end up in prison. You'll end up locked away for a very long time. There will be a consequence of that. Um, but but I believe we, we we do what we can with the resources that we've got. Mm. Wow, it's very powerful. You herself uh, confessed good, good cook. Yes. <laughs> What's your dish of poison? My favourite dish to make is um, mm, quite good at Balmoral chicken, All which right. is um, chicken breast and it's stuffed with haggis and wrapped in bacon with a pepper sauce, whiskey oh, pepper wow. sauce. It's lovely. That's not an easy dish. Oh, it's lovely. And also... Is it the, is it the making or is it the eating? Um, a bit of both, really. Mm. A bit of both. I think there's a real therapeutic kind of um, process that goes on, goes on when you're cooking. Mm. And I think to see something from a bunch of ingredients sitting in front of you to like, ta -da! Um, at the end, because I like things that have an end product, mm. um, and um, um, we I had a come down with me one night, and this, the theme was Scotland in the seventies. So we had Scottish dress, Scottish food, and I had bought um, Elvis Presley placemats <laughs> and re record holders as as coasters, and um, and I made uh, celeriac soup with Stornoway black pudding and scallop in the middle of the soup, which wow. was delicious. I made the Balmoral chicken with um, with potatoes and I can't remember what veg I made with it. And then I made cranachan, which is rolled Scottish oats 
toasted and there's honey and there's cream and there's whiskey and strawberries, uh, raspberries. And I got Scottish raspberries for that as well. And it was just, oh, it was amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But yeah, I, I, I enjoy cooking. I had a training on Saturday. I, I deliver a programme called Beat Your Peak Each Time You Speak. And I was delivering it for the first time on Saturday there. Mm -hmm. And I had, I had sold out. So I was kind of going, I want to create uh, I want to set a precedence for, for my training. So the, the lunch was really nice, the room was really good, it was set out really well, it was a nice small number. There was eight of us, so there was 10 of us all together, but there was eight people on the course. Um, and um, and then the night before, I was like, I'm gonna bake scones. I'm gonna bake fresh scones for in the morning. So I made fresh scones, so there was nice fresh scones that were made and yeah, it was good. But that was like, on Friday night, that was like my way of kind of chilling out and getting myself mm. ready was, and it only takes like half an hour or something to make scones. It's not mm. a big, it's not a big thing. But um, but it was just nice and it was just nice. There were people in the morning who were like, oh, these scones are lovely. And I was like, I made them last night. Mm -hmm. So, and they were like, seriously, you made the scones? And like, but again, it's about setting, it's about setting a standard. Sure. I mean, even what I do here in Hydro is like, I'm part of, we're setting up the UK um, and Republic of Ireland flotation tank, float tank association to get some standards in this industry because it's mm. an unregulated industry in the UK. So basically somebody could just open a float center and make their own tanks. And you know, have, there's no controls around filtration of their water. There's no, everything here we have tight. We have, you know, we check the water in the morning for its alkalinity, for its pH level, for see how much sodium hypochlorite in it, to see how much free chlorine there is. We check it at night, we constantly mm. clean the cabins. We worked with a company called IOTA and done Legionella testing and mm. tested all our water supplies and various things like that because I believe there should be a set standard. You sure. know, I want things to be like when I go on a training course, the things that make it for me are the small touches, like mm. like I brought in innocent smoothies. And so coming in for me going on a training and seeing that, it's like, oh, that's really nice. Somebody's took the time. Somebody's mm. really considered what they're doing here. Um, do you know, and I made like a nice booklet, a, a workbook for the people so they could follow through the stuff. I set a session plan. I made sure that I was, that I was, that it was, that it was planned and organized. Um, wow. It's <laughs> exceeding. So fire in the belly. One word, a couple of words. <laughs> fire in the belly. For me, um, float tanks. Has to be. Well, mm -hmm. it's quite a journey. Devin, mm -hmm. I suspect it won't be the last time we speak. Ah, good. It's been <laughs> fantastic, um, and thank you very much. No, you're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, oh boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that, and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon, and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.